Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I'm talking to Dr. Cheryl Bouhey about clozapine prescribing and monitoring in primary care. Cheryl graduated from the Otago Medical School and is a fellow of the Royal Australia and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. She works for White Matter DHB. Specialist Mental Health Services as their primary care liaison psychiatrist. She provides excellent specialist support to GP practices within the West Auckland area. She's involved in GP teaching and is a contributor to the mental health resources on the Auckland Regional Health Pathways. Welcome back to the podcast, Cheryl. It's mm-hmm. lovely to have you here with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So we're talking about clozapine, which is a second generation or atypical antipsychotic, which is prescribed often for treatment-resistant schizophrenia. So clozapine, it has a number of potentially life-threatening side effects and requires quite specific monitoring. So Cheryl, firstly, is it appropriate for general practitioners to be prescribing clozapine and care for patients on this medication? So um, patients who are prescribed clozapine by specialist mental health services who would initiate this treatment, they do have ongoing follow-up with their GP for their physical health needs. So even if they're formally under specialist mental health follow-up, the GPs would would be seeing these patients for their other health concerns. There are a number of patients who have been um, identified as being able to manage their clozapine regime competently and independently, including going for their monthly blood tests, seeing their GP and picking up their prescriptions from their pharmacy. And these people um, remain in specialist mental health services for three monthly prescribing of clozapine. And apart from this, they have little or no contact with um, specialist mental health services, and they're able to live independently in the community. So in several DHBs, and certainly within Waitemata DHB, patients on clozapine who meet certain criteria have been able to transition successfully to the care of their GP, who continue to prescribe clozapine and provide ongoing monitoring of their physical and mental health care needs. So for a GP to safely prescribe clozapine, if they meet you know, these criteria, uh, to be able to prescribe uh, clozapine, they should be either be a medical practitioner who um, prescribe under the supervision of a psychiatrist, or be a vocationally registered general practitioner who is prescribing in collaboration or following consultation with a community mental health team for a patient whose illness is otherwise well controlled on clozapine. So Cheryl, these patients that have been handed over for us or to us, how often should we be seeing them? So a patient on clozapine should see their GP three monthly for monitoring of their clozapine treatment, as well as their general physical health needs. So GPs who are responsible for prescribing clozapine on an ongoing basis um, should be reviewing these um, patients three monthly. And you've mentioned monitoring. It's quite complex. So yes, it is. <laughs> Definitely. How should we approach this? Let's start perhaps with a body system approach. So thinking about the gut, because that's always one of the concerns, isn't it? Constipation related. Yes. So yes. Let's go with that. 
So um, constipation is a serious, is a common side effect and, and has a, you know, serious consequences if, if not picked up early and not adequately treated. So constipation is very co a very common side effect of clozapine and can affect up to six in every 10 people who do take it. And the risk of constipation is increased in patients who are prescribed higher doses of clozapine and in patients who develop fever as this may slow the metabolism of clozapine. So clozapine-related constipation results from gastrointestinal hypomotility, which is thought to be due to clozapine's anticholinergic and anti-serotonergic properties. And the constipation, if um, left untreated, it can lead to toxic megacolon, bowel perforation, sepsis, and death. So early, I can't emphasize strongly enough that early treatment for constipation is very, very important in this situation. So you've mentioned uh, six in 10 patients in increasing with clozapine dose. So there's a Porirua protocol that we should be familiar with and have access to. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about this? So the Porirua protocol is a regimen of laxatives um, for the prevention and treatment of clozapine-related constipation. And it was first published in 2014 by researchers at the University of Otago in Wellington. So um, just going through what the protocol is all about, when a person is started on clozapine, all patients are prescribed two tablets of docusate and senna at night. And if there is no bowel movement for two days, the dose of the docusate and senna is increased and reviewed after 48 hours. So you can further increase the laxative dose um, after further review after another 48 hours um, if a person is still constipated. And at this point, if the patient is still constipated after four days, you, you know, one would do a rectal exam to check for impaction. So if a person has fecal impaction, the patient is discussed with a mental health team and the gastroenterologist and a manual disimpaction and you know, enemas might be required at this point. Um, and if there's no impaction, the docusid and senna is continued for another 48 hours. And if there's still constipation after this period, you might consider adding macrogol sachets with a further review after another 48 hours. So, you know, when specialist mental health starts um, people on clozapine, there should really be a uh, you know, constipation manage management plan in place so that if they do transition to GP care, that plan has already been formulated and communicated um, with a GP. So it sounds like patients need to be well-educated about this and self-monitor. So how do we teach our patients to self-monitor? So it is important for patients to receive the appropriate education on the risk of constipation due to clozapine and how they can self-monitor for constipation by being aware of the frequency of their bowel movements and consistency of stools. So but for GPs, at each consultation, um, they should explore any subjective difference between their bowel motions pre- and post-clozapine initiation and assess the form and the frequency of bowel movement. So not solely asking about frequency. You, you have to inquire about you know, the form as well. 
And there are useful um, resources um, available on Auckland um, Health Regional Health Pathways that you can use. And shortly, the Waitemata DHB resource called um, Clozapine and Caring for Your Gut will be made available via Health Pathways and also through the Goodfellow website, along with this podcast. And this resource includes you know, a constipation action plan, the Bristol stool chart, and a bowel record chart, which, you know, you can use in, in primary care. So Cheryl, apart from medications, are there other practical strategies that we need to tell our patients to do? So it's good to encourage patients to adopt measures which may prevent constipation. So not just through the use of laxatives. So having a high fiber diet, you know, of at least three serves of vegetables, two serves of fruit, some cereal, bread, rice, or pasta every day, or more than 30 grams of fiber uh, per day, encourage them to have an adequate fluid intake. So about one and a half to two liters of fluid a day, and also get involved in physical activity and exercise. So as I mentioned just before, you know, laxatives can be started preemptively as part of the Porirua protocol and other laxatives um, that can be used include um, stimulant laxatives such as Sena and Laxol, but not if a person has fecal impaction or obstruction. Macrogol osmotic laxatives like Movicol can be used when um, there's fecal loading um, diagnosed or suspected. Lactulose can also help, but not if you need rapidly acting treatment. Enemas can help remove an impaction and they are, but these are contraindicated in gastrointestinal obstruction. Um, and it's also worth mentioning that any medications that can worsen constipation should also be avoided as much as possible because those effects can compound with the constipating effects of clozapine. So thinking red flags for a moment in relation to constipation, what are the red flags and what do we do if someone presents with a red flag? So it's important to be aware of the red flags related to constipation as these indicate that you need an urgent medical or surgical review. So these red flags um, include reduced frequency of bowel motions, moderate to severe abdominal pain lasting more than an hour, abdominal cramps or um, distension, uh, watery diarrhea, which can, may suggest overflow diarrhea, bloody diarrhea, uh, fecal and smelling breath, or other non-bowel specific symptoms such as fever, nausea, drowsiness, vomiting. And the clinical signs um, suggesting that are part of the red flags include absent or high-pitched um, bowel sounds, hemodynamic insta instability, elevated white cell count, metabolic acidosis, or any, any signs suggestive of um, sepsis. Thank you for that. So we've addressed constipation. So moving now on to the cardiovascular system. So cardiac toxicity often occurs also. Um, things like orthostatic hypertension, sinus tachycardia, and less often QT prolongation, myocarditis, and cardiomyopathy. So what sort of symptoms should we be asking our patients about in clinic? So at every consultation, one must assess for cardiac symptoms, including symptoms of heart failure. So uh, talking about myocarditis, um, this can occur in the first weeks after starting clozapine treatment. And 
The symptoms and signs include fever, chest pain, shortness of breath, diarrhea, or you know, nausea and vomiting, tachycardia, dysuria, and um, and rash. And some of your um, uh, blood tests may show raised white cell count and raised eosinophils. So you would need to do ECG, check CRP, the CK full blood count, troponin, a chest X-ray, and and arrange an urgical, uh, urgent medical or cardiology review. So that's for myocarditis. Um, with cardiomyopathy, this can occur at any stage of the treatment, and it's typically the dilated type. So the symptoms of cardiomyopathy are similar to heart failure. Again, you'd need an ECG, CRP, CK, full blood count, troponin, a BNP, chest X-ray, and echocardiogram. And if it's severe, there are significant uh, symptoms you need to arrange an urgent medical or cardiology review. Then you've got tachycardia from clozapine, which is common um, in the early stages of treatment, uh, but more caution is needed if um, your heart rate is going at over 120 beats per minute, or for those with a rise of 30 or more beats per minute above the recent results, especially in the four weeks um, of treatment. And as you already mentioned, um, QT um, prolongation can also occur. So Cheryl, is there a role for regular blood tests or ECGs or ECHOs to pick these complications up early? Yes. So as I um, had mentioned, that if cardiac complications are suspected, those relevant blood tests and investigations um, uh, should be requested as clinically indicated. Excellent. So thinking now about metabolic health, uh, antipsychotics combined with a poor lifestyle, smoking, alcohol, can lead to poor cardiovascular outcomes for many of our patients. So how often should we be managing these metabolic parameters? So metabolic parameters should be monitored at least once a year. So these include measurement of weight, BMI, waist circumference, fasting lipids, and HbA1c. So I mentioned the poor lifestyle choices about alcohol and smoking, and they're really common in our psychiatric patients. So what do we need to know about these? And it's often the change, isn't it, in consumption mm, that is right. concerning? So in this, in this section, you know, it's important to consider caffeine intake, smoking, and alcohol. So we ask that routinely anyway. So caffeine can raise clozapine serum levels. And if there's sudden cessation of regular caffeine intake, it can decrease clozapine levels. Like for example, if you're caffeine free for five days, this can lead to a decrease in serum clozapine levels by almost 50%. So that is significant. For smokers, so chemicals in cigarette smoke, um, so there's aromatic hydrocarbons, can lower clozapine serum levels um, through their induction of the cytochrome, you know, CYP1A2 enzyme. So if you suddenly stop smoking and you're on clozapine, your clozapine um, serum levels can rise. So for some, the increase can be as much as um, 50% and it's um, associated with toxicity. So it's, it's important to note any changes in how much they're smoking day to day. And in terms of alcohol intake, 
alcohol, we know it has depressant effects. Um, and if you're, you know, consuming alcohol on top of clozapine, those CNS depressant effects are, are additive if you're used concurrently. So thinking about neutropenia and a granulocytosis, these are worrying and life-threatening uh, problems associated with clozapine. So how often is this documented? How common is it? And how frequently do we need to monitor our full blood counts, for example? So when someone started on clozapine, full blood count monitoring is performed weekly um, in the first 18 weeks to check for um, neutropenia and for a granulocytosis. And after 18 weeks of treatment, full blood count is checked every four weeks. So agranulocytosis is most common in the first 18 weeks of clozapine treatment, but it can occur at any time. So it is important that if a patient presents to the GP with any signs of infection at any point in their on clozapine, that you request an urgent full blood count to check their white cell and neutrophil counts. Urinary incontinence, Cheryl, this is associated again with clozapine and his complex pathophysiology. What do we need to consider here? Urinary incontinence from clozapine is thought to be multifactorial. So it is thought it could be due to clozapine's anti-adrenergic activity, which could reduce the bladder tone of the internal sphincter. So if urinary incontinence occurs in a person on clozapine, please contact the mental health team for further advice um, on possible interventions because it, you know, possible interventions could include a reduction in the clozapine dose or using other management strategies such as limiting fluid intake in the evening, voiding before bedtime, excluding constipation or um, using other agents such as desmopressin. Hypersalivation can be a really distressing condition or side effect for our patients on this medication. So how commonly does this occur? And what sort of things can we do to help our patients if this does occur? So hypersalivation, um, this is reported to affect about 30% of patients treated with clozapine. And again, like uh, the other side effects, it's thought of to, to be multifactorial. Uh, for example, it may be due to excessive saliva production, um, increased salivary flow and reduced clearance. And it's often more noticeable at night. So hypersalivation may be um, a cause for chronic sleep disturbance for some people, and it should also be considered as a contributor to daytime sedation. If hypersalivation is severe and untreated, this may progress to aspiration pneumonia. And there has also been a number of case reports of clozapine-induced parotitis. So in terms of its course, it often improves gradually with time, but it can be weeks to months, independent of any pharmacological intervention. So it's important to re review this at each consultation, um, if there's been an improvement or whether it's problematic or worsening. And then you might consider other interventions that might be helpful. So useful interventions include using an absorbent pillowcase or putting a towel on the pillow at night that might be useful to start with. Uh, you can use look at interventions that help stimulate the swallowing of saliva, such as um, sucking on sugar-free lozenges or mints. 
then you can look at medication management, such as you know metoclopramide. Terazosin was often common, you know, was often used for treatment of clozapine-induced hypersalivation, but unfortunately, there's no longer terazosin supply in the country. Other options you have are uh, locally acting anticholinergics. So ipratropium nasal spray applied sublingually can be an option or atropine solution used as an oral rinse have, has been um, helpful for some. But then if you're looking beyond this, this might require discussing with specialist mental health services. For example, if you're looking at systemically acting anticholinergics such as, you know, benztropine or cogentin um, or a hyacine, hyacine patch. But, you know, might be mindful that hyacine patches um, can worsen constipation and clonidine patches are also used in for some people. And especially if they don't like taking tablets every day, they just have the patch um, and change it periodically. So Cheryl, you've mentioned drug interactions, which makes me wonder about starting new medications. Are there a, any particular classes of drugs or drugs that we should be cautious of when a patient is on clozapine? Yeah, so the, uh, the main advice to be aware regarding drug interactions is, you know, please be aware of it. If someone is on clozapine, be aware. Um, and the drug interactions can, can be via several Pathway. So, firstly, it could be through additive adverse effects, such as you know, acute you know, constipation. So, if you're on a lot of constipating medications, also QT prolongation. If you're on multiple medications that can prolong the QT interval, it's important to be mindful about that, as well as um, you know, bone marrow suppression. So, and you know, are, is this person on other treatments, not only for their mental health, but you know, that are that can increase the risk of these side effects. So if you add clozapine to the mix, the risk increases further. Um, secondly, like I mentioned, if you're um, taking clozapine as well as other centrally acting depressants like um, alcohol and benzodiazepines, because they're all sedating. So being mindful about that. And thirdly, through, you know, if you're prescribing medications that impact on the um, cytochrome system as um, whether they act via the induction or inhibition of the CYP1A2 enzyme. So drugs um, that might, may increase plasma concentrations of clozapine include your SSRIs, your antidepressants, cimetidine, caffeine, lamotrigine, um, uh, risperidone, antipsychotic, combined um, oral contraceptives. So there's been case reports of that affecting clozapine um, levels. And likewise, uh, drugs that can decrease clozapine levels include medications like rifampicin and some anticonvulsants such as carbamazepine and phenytoin. So it's a lot to remember, but just being mindful that, you know, you're, if you're starting something for a health condition, that do check for drug interactions. And there is a New Zealand formulary drug interaction checker available online, which is really handy. And you just plug in the medications that you're co-prescribing and it just gives you that alert if they do interact or not. It's a great practice tip. Thank you, Cheryl. And to conclude our podcast today, some take-home messages for our listeners, please. So take-home messages. Um, GPs can always access specialist mental health advice for any concerns regarding a patient's clozapine treatment, even if the 
patients' care has been transitioned from specialist mental health to GP care. So I know the comfort levels of, you know, managing clozapine-related side effects and prescribing, it differs from one practitioner to another. So any concerns of whether they haven't turned up for their blood tests, they're, um, they're having side effects, um, please get hold of us sooner than later to access advice. So secondly, all practitioners caring for patients taking clozapine should be aware of clozapine-induced constipation because it is highly prevalent. And as I mentioned, these have serious consequences if untreated. So do think about using prophylactic um, laxatives, like as per the Poirua protocol, and patients should be assessed for constipation at every consultation. So thirdly, um, patients on clozapine should be monitored for symptoms and signs of cardiac toxicity and neutropenia. And the metabolic effects uh, from clozapine should be monitored for and managed accordingly. So don't forget your annual metabolic monitoring. And lastly, as we just you know, spoke about, do be aware of drug interactions when prescribing medicines for someone on clozapine and also um, look out for any changes in their cigarette smoking patterns or caffeine consumption as this may need a dose adjustment of clozapine. And also we talked about um, accessing specialist mental health advice. So we do not expect GPs to, to be altering doses of clozapine without discussion um, because when people are transitioned to primary care, they would have been on the same dose of clozapine for a period of time. And if we do need to adjust doses, please do get hold of us because they might need to come back under the care of specialist mental health while we get things stabilized again. And then we can communicate that with their GP if they're ready to be transitioned back to mental health care. And again, primary mental health care, sorry. And then, and also we have to balance that with their mental health wellness as well. So if they're relapsing or in their uh, mental illness, they might need a period of support through specialist services. So do communicate that with us sooner than later so we can agree on a proper plan. Perfect. Makes perfect sense. Thank you, Cheryl. It's been a pleasure talking to you again and having you again. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Always useful. Thank you, Cheryl. If you're a GP and would like to claim some CPD points for listening, please do that. Log it on your learning forms. Cheryl's provided us with some wonderful resources. You can find these at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find free webinars, med cases, and e-learning modules. Thanks for listening today.